0: in Ephesians tonight, Ephesians chapter five. And we want to finish out uh, this section on marriage tonight. Uh, marriage, a picture of Christ in the church is what I've titled the message. And let's uh, begin with a word of prayer here. Lord, again, we thank you for the privilege to assemble in Jesus' name. Thank you for each one that's able to come out. And we pray that our study would be profitable, as well as the seamless Bible study going on across the street. We ask for your blessing on that as well. So uh, we just commit our evening to you, our time of prayer to follow. I thank you for the privilege, the freedoms uh, that we uh, still yet enjoy to uh, assemble and to worship in this way. So we commit our evening to you now. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, as uh, we are in Ephesians, the emphasis here is the church and uh, positional truth, our union with Christ, our union with each other, which is the emphasis of the church. Practical uh, truth follows in chapters 4 through 6, walk in unity, holiness, love, light, and wisdom. And out of this emphasis on wisdom comes this huge section on submission. Uh, to one another, uh, wives to husbands, children to parents, slaves to masters. We're in that section on wives uh, to husbands yet at this point in our study. So uh, it's interesting. Uh, this uh, prolonged emphasis on submission uh, really flows out of uh, the spirit-filled emphasis. Uh, be filled with the spirit. And out of that comes this emphasis on on submission. And uh, we... Uh, started last time emphasizing the husband-wife relationship. The the wives are told to submit to the husbands as to the Lord. Uh, The husbands are told to love the wives as Christ loved the church. Well, Paul's got a little bit more to say on this subject, and that's what we're going to look at tonight. You know, it is interesting as you think about uh, the deeper meaning of marriage and what it's all about and how it was a secret for 4,000 years. Nobody knew the meaning of marriage. That is the deeper meaning of marriage, as we are going to study it and understand it tonight. So uh, let's uh, begin. Uh, We we looked at last time uh, verses 22 through uh, 27. And uh, let's uh, pick it up tonight. Uh, Somebody want to read verses 28 through 30. We'll get started there. 28 through 30. Okay, Anita. In the same way... Okay. Thank you. What's your translation there? Yeah, that's good because the ESV left out that part that shouldn't be in there. But anyway, uh, we'll talk about that in a minute here. But this is building what we are studying here tonight. Paul here draws uh, a conclusion from and then builds on the previous exhortation in which husbands are told to love their wives just as Christ loved the church. There we see that Christ gave himself sacrificially for the good of the church, to the end that the church should be sanctified and ultimately glorified. So Christ is at work in in the life of the church to build her into what uh, he wants her to be. The parallel thought is that the husband should give of himself sacrificially for the good of the wife and build her into uh, into her life in ways that develop sanctification. That's really the parallel uh, thought that we are looking at here in the text. Well, uh, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. Here's how a husband should love. And uh, note there's a tremendous emphasis on your own wife. Uh, six times in, in the verses here, verses 22 through 33, own wives, own wives, own wives, a recurring emphasis there. And the word love here is agape. Uh, we've talked about this a lot through the years. Agape love, uh, Agape is the intense word for love. There's a number of words that are used for love. Sometimes they they overlap, but uh, certainly consistency. The word agape is the intense word for love, and uh, it emphasizes uh, God's kind of love. Uh, it uh, seeks the other person's highest good. Uh, it's other centered. It's uh, it's uh, gives itself sacrificially. And uh, the thing about uh, this kind of love is it doesn't go by feelings, really. It's uh, an act of the will. You might not feel like loving in this way, but uh, it doesn't go by feelings. Um, I'm sure it wasn't the greatest feeling in the world for Christ to die on the cross, but it was, you know, his principles that that put him there. It was his will, not my will, but your will, he says, uh, to the Father. And so husbands ought to uh, love their wives, love their own wives uh, as their own bodies. Now, it should be a given that we love our own bodies, right? People say they don't, they, they, they hate themselves. You know, well, I, I, you know, why do you hate yourself? Because you really love yourself and you wish you weren't the way you are, maybe, yeah, you know. But anyway, uh, love their own, their own wives as their own bodies. You know, we, we pamper ourselves, Right. When I get up in the morning, the first person I think about taking care of is myself, right? I don't look over at Janie and say, well, what do you need? In fact, I know better. <laughs> I leave her alone. But anyway, I get up. Uh, but our whole life, you know, it's kind of prioritizing ourself. You know, I, I need a drink. I, I need this. I need that. I'm, I'm taking care of myself. I don't think about brushing my wife's teeth. I'm brushing my own teeth. Anyway, uh, you know, we just naturally are kind of prioritizing our own needs, our own self. And, but that's, I think what he's saying here, that we, as we really care about our own selves, and our own body, and taking care of ourselves, which we naturally do, husbands are to think about their wives in that way, as far as really taking care of them, really prioritizing them. That's the, the th- whole thrust here. And that's where he goes here. He says, he who loves his wife loves himself. And I think uh, as you follow what he's saying through here, uh, the two are intimately now one. <clears throat> you have the two. But there's still one uh, in uh, marriage here. And uh, it's really self-destructive to harm the other partner. The goal is when you're, when you're doing the best for the other partner, you're really doing the best for yourself because you're in this thing together. And uh, loving the wife also has uh, ramifications for self. And that's what he's saying here. He who loves him, his wife loves himself. All right, any other thoughts before I move on to the next verse? I'll give you a little chance for input at the end of each verse here. Otherwise, I'll continue with the flow of thought here. All right, well, we must have covered that thoroughly. So let's go on to verse 29. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. Now, it is true that it is normal and natural uh, to uh, not hate your own flesh. Uh, They say, uh, no one ever hated his own flesh except for fools and fanatics, right? Uh, What about fools and fanatics? Well, as I say, I'm not so sure about them uh, either. Is suicide an act of self-hate or an act of self-love? You might want to think about that a little bit. I suppose maybe it depends how you want to define things and how you want to look at it. But uh, a lot of times it's because I'm not happy about something that relates to self. And uh, so that's, uh, you know, like the old saying goes if you really hated yourself, you'd be glad you're ugly, right? <laughs> uh, there's probably some truth in that. No one really ever hated his own flesh. Uh, Honer says this Harold Honer, uh, it should be noted that in verses 28 and 29, or in the entire context, there is no command to love oneself, or the assertion that self love is necessary before one can love another. It's a natural aspect of the human condition to love, nurture, and protect oneself. And that's where, uh, where, where Paul is coming from. He's building on this. We naturally love ourselves. That's what we saw in verse 28. And uh, he's kind of continuing on with that thought here. <clears throat> it's not normal or natural to, to hate your own flesh. But he says, uh, no one ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. To nourish means to care for. And to cherish means uh, to exert tender care for. So it's that idea that uh, there is headship responsibility for a husband, and yet uh, he is to care for his wife in a, in a nourishing way, in a way that's building her up, in a, in a cherishing way. There's, there's to be a tender care given for, for, to the wife here. And then, just to, so we don't miss it, he, he clarifies it, just as the Lord does the church. Uh, the Lord, how does he treat the church? Well, he nurtures the church. He tenderly cares for the church. I I would emphasize here those two words, nourishes and cherishes. Uh, That's how the husband is to treat his wife, and that's how the Lord treats the church. Note the concept of Christ nourishing and cherishing the church does not fit with him brutalizing her in the tribulation period. This is my theology coming through here, um, for sure. Uh, during the time of his wrath. Uh, Note that 1 Thessalonians 4 addresses the rapture of the church, which is then followed by the judgment of the tribulation, the the day of the Lord's wrath in 1 Thessalonians 5. So I think this is consistent as far as the the big picture here, what God's doing in the world. Uh, In like manner as Christ does to the church, the husband is to tenderly nurture and care for his wife. To nurture her is to help her grow and mature in the Lord. To cherish her is to shower her with tender love and warm affection to give her protection, comfort, and, and security. So there's a there's a tremendous emphasis there in terms of uh, uh, building her up in a positive way. Uh, I don't see harshness here, really, anywhere. Uh, you know, completely out of line if that's the, the thinking, like I'm the harsh dictator-type leader. That's not the spirit here. All right. Uh, any other thoughts? Yep. Really? And you're disappointed? I'm <laughs> joking, I was pretty sure. So self esteem doesn't come Uh Not as the world would define it, I think. As psycho babblers would define it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I think really self esteem tends to be the problem. Uh, not, not uh, I, I think certainly you know there, there's a proper view of self biblically. Your identity in Christ, uh, your identity as a as a person who's created in the image of God to start with, and then as a as a born again Christian. The whole emphasis of the New Testament is finding our identity in Christ, really not in self independent of Christ, which is where the world is coming from, which is what you're talking about, really. So, yeah. Um, I I don't think it's humble necessary to walk around putting yourself down all the time. Got you're fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, you know, you just got to kind of come back to what the Bible says and believe what the Bible says, and you'll be fine as far as a proper view of self here. So, sorry, I'm off on a rabbit trail here, but you got me started. Well, it's just the exact opposite. Of it. <clears throat> Yeah, and you know, here it's not like he's uh, rebuking uh, what is normal or natural necessarily. Of course, you uh, love yourself in a in a sense. Uh, you know, there's self preservation. If you're being attacked, you defend yourself. I mean, there's there's some natural, normal realities that are there that are not necessarily bad. I mean, you know, even rewards. People sometimes all spiritual say, "Well, I'm not serving for any reward." Well, why not? I mean, on Judgment Day, you are going to be quite concerned about yourself and how you're, you're going to stand before God and what he's going to say to you. So I think there's a, there's a proper view, and there's a kind of a twisted view sometimes when it comes to self. But I just don't want to think like the world thinks, that I, I find my uh, self-esteem in self, independent of Christ. Uh, in, I am what I am by the grace of God, and that's good enough. Uh, God doesn't make any junk. Uh, it's It's good. Uh, and and uh, he loves us and all the things we find in Jesus Christ. All right, uh, let's uh, press on to verse 30. Notice he says, for we are members of his body. And then uh, Anita's translation, the ESV stopped right there. And that's probably right. Uh, The rest of it here, of his flesh and bones, is probably not in the original. Most everybody thinks this is a scribal insertion here, uh, the King James there, of his uh, flesh and bones. But talk about that more in just a second. Uh, For we are members of his body. It's interesting, in chapter 4, verse 25, he says, for we are members uh, one of another. Here he says, we are members of his body. And as such, this this underscores the intimacy uh, that we have with Jesus Christ. And that's where he's going to go here. Uh, We are very... intimately and intricately uh, joined to Christ as members of his body. We are inseparably uh, connected in union with him. I always think about what Jesus told uh, Saul when he was persecuting the church. And when when Jesus met Saul on the road to Damascus, uh, he fell down to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Isn't that interesting? He didn't say, why are you persecuting the church? Saul could have said, well, nothing personal with you. Yeah, it is. You're persecuting me. He said, who are you, Lord? Interesting, that's that's kind of a lordship concept there, would you say? Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Hard for you to kick against the goats. But Jesus makes this very personal. And of course, Paul was going after the church. He's persecuting the church. Jesus says, this is me. This is my body. I'm joined to the church. Uh, we are members of His body, and then, as I say, uh, this last part of flesh of His flesh and bones. Um, some say, "Well, maybe this, if it was part of the original, perhaps means uh, we are His physical representatives on the earth and different things." But actually, it doesn't appear that this was probably a part of the original here. All right, any other thoughts? Okay. Let's have somebody read verses uh, 31 and 32. Who wants to read that? 31 and 32. Toinette For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Okay. Uh, we have a quote here. Uh, it's from Genesis 2.24. And uh, this is the key foundational, that is Genesis 2.24, is the key foundational verse on marriage. We have three emphases brought out in relationship to marriage here. Uh, The leaving, the joining to, and the one flesh. And so uh, those are kind of three key emphases related to the marriage relationship. And uh, so let's begin with leaving. Uh, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. Uh, you know, in marriage, you have two things happening. There's a breaking of family ties, <clears throat> in a sense, in a sense. There, there's, a, there's a leaving. Uh, you know, I'm leaving the family today, and you are. You're leaving father and mother. You're leaving family as you've known it, in that sense. And there's a, there's a making of a family. Brand new, start of a brand new family. So there's a, there's a, a breaking family ties and there's a, a making of new family ties. You're beginning a new home. And so uh, no longer is uh, as a man, when he begins uh, uh, married life with his wife, no longer is he under the authority of the parents as he was before. It's a new day here. And so that's uh, uh, being emphasized here. Now the man would be the head of his own family. And uh, yes, there still is to be honor, but uh, there's going to be a difference in relationship now. And I always like to say to the in-laws and to the outlaws, no meddling here, no meddling. I really try to practice that. Sometimes my kids have thought I don't care because I I refuse to meddle. And it's like, oh, I care. But I'm not going to dictate how you run your lives. I've told every one of my son-in-laws when, when they got married, I'm not going to interfere with your marriage. And uh, I've really tried uh, to honor that. I think this is kind of a funny story, true story. It's a true story. A man, a newly married couple had a spat. She called home and her dad answered the phone in a whimpering voice. She wanted to know if she could come home. The dad responded, honey, you are home. Thanks for calling. Goodbye. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think there's there's a there's a lot of truth in that. Now, you know, if you've got overtly an abusive type situation, you know, there's always exceptions where somebody is physically in danger and that kind of thing. Well, that calls for interference simply by the nature of it. But if you've had a spat. Sorry, honey, you are home. Uh, don't come running to daddy here. Uh, so. Uh, At this point, uh, the leaving denotes there's even a higher loyalty than the family ties that the person has known before. Uh, And the marriage relationship presents an even more intimate relationship than anything they've known in the family relationship uh, prior as a a son or as a daughter. Uh, There is no more intimate relationship than the husband-wife relationship. All this is bound up in this idea of leaving. Uh, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. Okay, next point. And be joined to his wife. <clears throat> the word joined here is a strong word. It's the idea of being uh, glued together uh, permanently uh, till death do us part. Uh, of course, death does break the marriage relationship, as we know other places. But uh, it's really idea the, the idea, you know... We could almost use the language uh, metaphorically of being super glued together, and uh, uh, I, I, I guess I could say to my wife you 're stuck with me, right super glued. and uh, really it 's really a strong statement here: uh, Shall be joined together, be joined to his wife. Uh, Jesus says what God has joined together." I mean this is a, when God glues something together it 's a really strong bond. And so that's the idea here. Uh, Be joined to his wife. He leaves his father and mother, he's joined to his wife. And then uh, it says, uh, and the two shall become one flesh, one flesh. Uh, This denotes the sexual union, which is, uh, you know, and you know, I'm not going to go on too much about that, but it is an amazing thing. Uh, Sex was God's idea. And in the bounds of marriage, It's a good thing. It's blessed of the Lord. And uh, it's a high point in the the marriage relationship, in a sense. And uh, so what you have here with the one flesh is unparalleled uh, intimacy in terms of human relationships. Uh, You're you're not to do this with anybody else other than than your spouse. And so uh, one flesh, uh, one entity. Uh, What we have in marriage is really two lives bound up together in one. Uh, Two Two people, but their lives are bound up together in one. They're, they're building a life together. Oh, do you have your hand up? Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> uh, they share an identity in a sense. Uh, seen even They share the same last name. Unless, of course, in today's world they decide not to opt out of that or whatever. But uh, that's the sense. Uh, marriage uh, thinks in terms of us, not me. Uh, they're in this thing together, as the Bible says, "Heirs together of the grace of life." I often say to my wife, "No matter what happens, we're in this thing together." You know, they might throw me out of the church tomorrow, but I got you. <laughs> might lose everything else, but I, you're with me. Uh, we're together, no matter what happens, and uh, how true that is. Uh, just a few uh, slides here. The man uh, and the wife uh, come together as two separate entities, and are divinely superglued, as you, if you will, together for life. Each person is enriched by the other, and yet they are a blending of one. It's a blending of two separate lives into one. Uh, continuity with one's own personhood is not broken, but there is a radical transformation of it. In effect, there is a creating of a whole new self that is bound up in union with the other person. Boy, and I can really tell you that. I am a different person after I got married. It, didn't, it took a little while to get me there. <laughs> but that first year of marriage was kind of rough. I, I really thought it was her. And after one year, I realized it was me. I was the one who really needed to change some things here. You know, after you live by yourself for 27 years, it's kind of, you're kind of used to self. But anyway, uh, so you have two people who are now one, and yet they still retain their own personhood. This is a reality of intimate union and yet still two persons, a reality of one and yet two. Uh, marriage was uh, God's idea. It's ordained and instituted by God. Man didn't come up with this idea. Even the physical reality of things speaks to that fact. Common sense tells you that in order for the a human race to continue, you need Adam and Eve, male and female. Uh, Hebrews 13.4, Marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. He's going to hold everybody accountable to this pattern that he has ordained. By the way, all the good moral ideas are God's. You, you agree with that, right? Yeah. Uh, in fact, mankind never really comes up with anything original. Mankind twists and perverts what God has ordained, but never improves upon it. Such is the case with marriage today. So... Uh, God is the one who has uh, ordained marriage. And then one more slide here. In Romans 1.18, Paul speaks of the wrath of God, which is currently being revealed against the ungodly. How is this wrath revealed? He mentions quite a few things, actually. But it is revealed in the fact that God gives these people over to depraved minds and lets them go in their sin and thus reap the consequences of such vile sin. The perversion of marriage and the sexual relationship as intended by God is an indication of the wrath of God at work. It's certainly one of the key things that's mentioned in that in that context. There, this is a most precious, uh, a most uh, serious consequence, and shows a hardening towards God that becomes irremediable. It reflects a hardened rebellion against God and what He has ordained in holy matrimony. And it goes on to say in Romans one twenty two, professing to be wise, they became fools. And uh, we see a lot of folly in our context in our society today all right any other thoughts here okay if not uh, let me press on here this is a great mystery but i speak concerning christ and the church i'm going to come back to this but i want you to note the word great here this is a great mystery this isn't just a mystery. This is a great mystery. How many times do we have great mystery in the New Testament? Why well, didn't look it up? But off the top of my head, I can't think of another place where there's a great mystery. Is there? I'm, I'm just not sure. It's dangerous to float these kind of questions, probably. But anyway, uh, this one is certainly great. Uh, And mystery is an interesting word. We think a mystery is something that's unknown. And and really the way the New Testament uses the the word mystery is it's that which was previously unknown. It was a divine secret. Nobody knew it except God. But now it's been revealed. Now it's been made known. That's the way the New Testament uses this. So it's a divine secret that was previously unknown. Uh, It was not knowable. We wouldn't know a mystery unless God told us. But now it has been revealed by God. And he uses this word mystery in relationship to God's master plan of salvation in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. He uses it in relationship to the relationship that the Jew and the Gentile now have in the the church in chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. But here he... Uses this phraseology, "great mystery" in relationship to Christ's relationship uh, to the church. It's a great. It's a great mystery, and great in the sense of awesome. It's awesome. Uh, I think God saved this in a, in a for a special uh, illustration. Great mystery speaks to the idea that this is an awesome thing that has tremendous implications. God is seeking to communicate to us just how intimate is this union that Christ has with the church. It is so close and intimate that the deepest and most profound human relationship union is used to illustrate it. As such, the marriage relationship parallels the spiritual union that God's people, the church, have with Jesus Christ. This relationship is of ultimate importance in Paul's mind. All of his discussion of marriage builds to this climactic concept which is that the marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship with the church. Uh, This is kind of a a climactic point of emphasis here. Uh, I guess i got one more slide there. The mystery is this. On one hand, the church is an independent entity receiving Christ's love and affection. On the other hand, the church is intimately united to Christ so as to constitute a unity. Christ and the church can never be separated. From now on, the one is forever connected to the other. This is the mystery as reflected in the marriage relationship. God has entered into the most intimate of relationships possible with us, the church, with his people. And the marriage relationship illustrates this. There is no more intimate relationship than the marriage relationship. And that's the point uh, that it illustrates as far as our relationship with Jesus Christ. This is a great mystery. It's not a minor one. It's great. It's great. It's awesome. And then he doesn't leave us hanging. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. So he's talking about uh, Christ and, and the church. Um, 1 Corinthians six seventeen. He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Uh, We think this language here in this verse is borrowed from Genesis 2.24, the marriage passage back in Genesis, uh, to speak of our relationship with the Lord. Various New Testament scriptures speak of the church as being married to Christ. Here is the the great mystery of marriage. The woman is both a body and a bride in union with her husband, so also the church is both a body and a bride in union with Christ. The Bible uh, follows really the... uh, the jewish custom of betrothal followed by uh, formal marriage and uh, it really illustrates beautifully uh, the church's relationship uh, with uh, with christ uh, normally this is what happened in jewish customs uh, a couple would become uh, what we would call engaged betrothed right betrothed which was really a, a it was a legal understanding that they were married, but not formally, and they would not have any sexual relations until the it was formally constituted. And so they would be betrothed, and then uh, the groom-to-be would go back, and he would build a house for them, maybe add on to father's house or close to father's house. And then about a year later, uh, he would uh, come back. Uh, and, and we're in that uh, betrothal stage yet, um, we haven't had the formal ceremony. 2 Corinthians eleven two. I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ, which was always the goal in a, in a Jewish wedding. We're, we're betrothed, we're, we're engaged, so to speak, uh, as far as, uh, stronger than engagement, actually, the Jewish betrothal, but uh, closest thing that we have in our culture. Well, after uh, the... Uh, the groom-to-be would finish building his house, which kind of corresponds to Christ going back, So I will prepare a place for you. Uh, then he goes on to say, I will come again and receive you unto myself. The groom, about a year later, she didn't know exactly when, but she knew right in this area somewhere, he's going to be coming, and the shout would go forth that the groom is here, and she would come out and meet her, uh, her groom. And then they would uh, go to the, the bridal chamber. Uh, there would be the formal joining of the couple. Uh, seven days, she would be in the bridal chamber, and then, and then she would be brought out. And uh, uh, they would all celebrate. They would celebrate with the guests who are there. And so uh, we have that, uh, that kind of that picture uh, drawn from the, the Jewish culture and customs there. Church is the bride of Christ, currently betrothed to Jesus. Uh, and this is a time of preparation. You know, the, uh, the groom-to-be would go and he would prepare the house. What's the bride doing? She's getting herself ready too, right? There's a time of preparation on both ends here. And so we are to be uh, preparing ourselves to meet, to meet Christ uh, as the bride of Christ. And then uh, Christ will come and get his bride. When's that gonna happen? Well, we don't know. But we're to be ready. We're to live ready, right? That's the rapture. Perhaps tonight. You know, I do this every, almost every morning. we got three bay windows. And uh, I'll open the first bay window. I'm the first one up usually in the morning. You know, I get up pretty early. Janie sleeps a little longer than I do. But uh, the, the sun is just coming up, or maybe not quite up yet, but getting ready. And uh, I'll open that curtain, and I'll say, Perhaps today. And I'll quote from John 14. And then I'll open the middle bay window, and I'll say, Perhaps today. And I'll quote from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And then I open the third bay window, and where do you think I quote from? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You know the three rapture passages. Perhaps today, perhaps today, perhaps today. I usually don't close the windows. Janie does that. But sometimes when I close the windows, I say, perhaps tonight, perhaps tonight, perhaps tonight. I really would like to be alive and have said that when he shows up someday. I don't know. Who knows when he's coming? But he is going to come someday, perhaps today. He will come and get his bride. He has said he would. And then there's going to be the formal marriage ceremony in heaven. In effect, at Father's house. And uh, that's going to be quite a time. The formal marriage ceremony of the Lamb, as we see in Revelation 19. And then the marriage supper of the Lamb. I believe that takes place in conjunction with... Uh, you know, the revealing of the bride to the guests and the celebration related to the kingdom, often associated with feasting and so forth. So uh, so this is what's in store for the bride. And you know, the one thing about the bride is uh, everything that the uh, the groom is about, the bride shares in that, right? Heirs together of the grace of life. You know, in First Thessalonians, uh, so shall we caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever... Be with the Lord. You know, where the Lord goes, we're going. I mean, he's not going to leave his bride behind. We're going with him. We are the bride of Christ. What a beautiful... You can't get more intimate than the bride of Christ. Praise the Lord for Israel. I'm happy for Israel. they got such a special place in the plan of God. But I'm so glad I'm a part of the bride of Christ. You know, I think I can champion that. we supposed to make those Jews a little envious, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Romans chapter 11. So, anyway, we, we are the bride of Christ. You can't get more intimate with God than the bride. You just can't. That's the picture. Now talk about an esteemed privilege. Talk about esteem. A uh, lot of esteem here. Uh, okay, anything else before we finish out? Got one more verse. Yes, Tom? Um, question about the Jewish uh, wedding. Um, yeah. Takes her back to the bridal chamber. Then they have the the ceremony. Uh Uh-uh. No. I I, I, I don't know exactly the details as far as where the ceremony, but it's being consummated in the bridal chamber, and everybody knows what's going on in the bridal chamber. And, uh, you know, there's probably some ceremonial-type stuff uh, around it. But like I say, they were already legally recognized as a married couple in the betrothal thing, so it's not like, you know... This is just the formal consummation of it, really. Um, so as far as what Jewish customs were specifically, I'm sure they <laughs> they wrap everything in ceremony. So I'm sure there was some ceremony around it. But, uh, you know, the formal consummation uh, where he talks about here, um, the two shall become one flesh. You know, that's that's happening in the bridal chamber there. Everybody knows what's going on there at that point. So. I'm just curious. Yeah. Right. Ceremonies first. Ceremonies first. Which, uh, you know, like I say, it's a little different in the sense that it was legally binding, the betrothal. They were considered married already, uh, legally. But, therefore, it's, it's legitimate. It was legitimate. That's right. Uh, I don't really know how to answer your question specifically as far as the Jewish. Uh, custom as far as what was there a, kind of an a official ceremony on top of that before they went into the bridal chamber? That's a good question. I don't know about that. I don't know for sure. Does anybody know? I'm I'm not sure. It's a good question. Yeah. The research that I've done. Yeah. Is that the seven days that they're in the bridal chamber? Yeah. There's also the a celebration going on outside. Right. Oh yeah, the guests are celebrating. Sure. Oh, they 're celebrating they 're celebrating yeah, for seven days uh, this this union that is taking place right there, right <laughs> spoken like a westerner <laughs> I mean, I understand I probably would too, but yeah, it was a celebration that was kind of interesting that you know the, the bride and the groom were celebrating, but were, all your guests were out there knowing what 's going on, celebrating too, kind of weird to us a little bit the way it feels but when do they drink the bride? Drink, drink the wine and put the glass down and smash it and try mazel <laughs> tov? Well, uh, that's a good question. I would think, you know, according to what Mac is talking about, too in my reading, you know, the bride kind of was. Covered until she came out at the end of the seven days and then he takes off and and he shares you know the beauty of his bride as far as you know to, with his guests and they're all celebrating at that point i don't know when they do that though that's a good question uh yeah we're getting into some fine points here as far as jewish culture here all right anything else okay one thing about you tom is you bring up provocative questions here okay verse 33 who wants to finish that out Yeah, John? Okay, so uh, we have a summary point here. He's kind of wrapping it up here. This is a summary uh, of what he has said. Uh, The spirit-filled marriage, this is what it looks like. Uh, Let each of you in particular so love his wife as himself. A uh, lot of space given, more space given to the husband's responsibility than, than actually to the wife. Although sometimes we really, you know, emphasize the wife's part. Bo- both are brought out here, of course. But uh, the husband's responsibility here. And uh, and then uh, let the wife see that she respects her husband to, to have the, the proper attitude there. But again, this is a great mystery. He's talking about Christ and, and the church. It's uh, It's climactic. It's special. And, uh, you know, if you have sometimes a really special secret, you keep it a secret for quite a long time. God kept this a secret for 4,000 years. I say they have marriages, and they had no idea that the church was in view, right? Nobody did until the church age comes along. All of a sudden, we got a 4,000-year secret that God says, guess what? There's a deeper meaning that I've been saving for all this time. It's a great mystery. It's a great thing. It's most special, Most intimate of all human relationships illustrating Christ's relationship to the church. How do we bring glory to God in marriage? Well, we put God on display. Marriage exists to put God on display by virtue of the couple living out a spirit-filled life. The key passage on marriage in the New Testament is found in Ephesians 5, what we've just covered. It just so happens this is also a key passage on the spirit-filled life. Ephesians 5 shows that the marriage is a picture of Christ's covenant relationship with his people called the church. Therefore, the high purpose in marriage is to put the covenant relationship that Christ has with the church on display. This is the ultimate purpose of marriage. Um, You know, the world doesn't have a clue uh, really what the deeper meaning and purpose of marriage is. This is it right here. Uh, I'm to love my wife as Christ loved the church. We uh, should be putting Christ on display in our marriage this relationship, say, boy, you have a very special relationship. Uh Yeah, we're illustrating the relationship that Christ has with, with us as his church. That's the real deeper purpose and meaning of marriage in the church age. All right, any other thoughts? We wrap up here. Yes? Um And say it also refers to Israel as the bride? Well, it refers to Israel as God's wife. Yeah. Which, you know, well, same thing, but... Yeah. Okay. Same thing, like I say. You know, basically, if you're a bride, you're a wife, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, Israel is spoken of as uh, in a few passages. or you thinking like Isaiah 5 and those kind of places? Uh, 62. 62. Okay. We're going to be going over that stuff. Okay. Well, good. Good. Yeah, I'm just wondering. I, I don't know. yeah Israel is spoken of uh, not in relationship to Christ per se, but in relationship to God. Yeah, relationship with Yahweh. Right. Yep. And they had a covenant relationship with God, which is the idea of a marriage. A marriage is a covenant relationship. And so they were in a covenant relationship with God, and they still are, you know, uh, even though, you know, most of Israel is lost at this point. But, uh, yeah. Didn't they, commit, they, they did, but God is still faithful to his covenant relationship to them. Yeah. Mm hmm. Sure. Yep. Yeah, the thing about the church is uh, it is a brand new thing, not in existence before the the uh, day of Pentecost. And so there are there is overlap here as far as God's covenant relationship with these people, Israel. We talk about God's got two uh, two people groups, two programs in that sense. And there's there is similarities, there is overlap, but there's also also some distinctions. Uh, There is, uh, I think God saved this illustration for the church because even though there were certain Jews that did, for example, have the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, there was never this intimacy like the church has. Uh, Israel never individually referred to God as their father like we do, Abba, Father. So there's, there's a level of intimacy represented in the church age. That was not found in the Old Testament. There's overlap, and yeah, there was a, a covenant relationship God had with Israel. And yet, I think the the deepest uh, relationship that God has ever had with people, uh, I, I think Israel will come around to that because they too will enter into that new covenant and the Spirit and the Kingdom. Probably stealing all of your thunder for Sunday, but uh, so. But at this point, where we are today, uh, boy, we have. In history, what has never been known before is intimacy with God. So, okay, anyone else? It's good input. All right, let's uh, share some prayer requests here. If you have your uh, prayer sheets, anybody?